This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Leatherhead, the daughter of Sir John Junor, who was the editor-in-chief of the Sunday Express. She studied history at St Andrews University, but left in her second year to marry her husband and become a journalist. Since then, she has written for several British newspapers and has penned both books and biographies about the royal family, such as The Firm, The Troubled House of Windsor, and Charles, Victim or Villain. She has also written biographies of significant political figures, John Major and Margaret Thatcher, and co-authored a host of celebrity memoirs. Outside of her writing, she has enjoyed a TV career. Now, she continues to write for major publications. She says that writing about the royal family, meeting them and watching them at work, has slowly transformed her from an ambivalent observer to a royal fan. My guest today is Penny Juno. Penny, thank you very much for coming on the show. We've been uh, trying to get you on for some time. Now, on this podcast, we always begin by asking the same question, which is, was yours a happy childhood? But I know you've spoken in the past about uh, your, your relationship with your father and how it was at times difficult. Um, I had a mixed childhood. I had a brother I adored. I had a mother I adored. I had a father who was very difficult and who was not very kind to my mother. And as a result, there were a lot of tensions in the house growing up. And... <laughs> So it, it was mixed, you know, a lot of happy memories, um, a lot of love. I mean, my father adored me and I never, um, you know, I never had any deprivation or cruelty of any sort. But it was very difficult watching my mother, who I adored, being being undermined and bullied by my father. And I mentioned that your father, of course, uh, a famous newspaper editor, you've gone on to be a writer. What? Was it a very, a very politically engaged household? Um, did it make you very interested in writing and current affairs growing up? Do you know, it had the complete opposite effect. I mean, we had prime ministers and cabinet ministers to, to dinner often. The house was always filled with politicians. My father always talked about politics and current affairs. And I, because of the, because of the way I felt about him, I found the whole thing incredible, a credible turnoff. I found politicians extraordinarily boring, I'm afraid to say. I had no interest in politics and I have carried on to this day um, really having no engagement with politics. Terrible thing to say. Well, aside, <laughs> aside from several books you have written, I suppose. <laughs> well, you know, I've written two political books. I wrote about Margaret Thatcher and I wrote about John Major. And I wrote to Margaret Thatcher and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to write this book, but I want to look at you as a woman, not as a politician, as a, a, a woman, a mother and a, and, a, um, and a wife. And she wrote back saying, Jolly nice. I'm terribly sorry. I won't have time to talk to you. And I but but do please talk to my family and friends which was fantastic. But the reason, of course, she said um, she didn't have time, I'm sure, was because I wasn't writing about the politician. And fundamentally, that's what she was through and through. Um, but, but, and so it was much more, as with my book about John Major, it was looking actually at the human being much more than the politician. 
So you have these politicians coming in and out of the House. Uh, you're not particularly infused or perhaps uh, taking interest. And does that mean at, at school, um, were you, I suppose the phrase girly swat is now used these days after um, I think Boris Johnson used it for Baroness Hale. But were you particularly studious or did the mm. rebellion stretch to also taking it, um, a slightly different approach to, to studies? To my great regret, and it is a lifelong regret, when I was at school, it was not cool to be a SWAT at all. Um, and I was, above all things, or wanted, above all things, to be one of the cool kids. So um, I didn't, I, I paid no attention. I just drifted through school. I wasted a very expensive and good education. <laughs> um, and I... I do regret that. I think education actually fundamentally is wasted on the young. Certainly this young one, when she was young. I know, Amy, I, I slightly think if I was doing my undergraduate studies again, I would uh, have a different approach in some ways. Then. <laughs> but it, do it doesn't seem to have ended too badly for you in terms of taking that approach. And you went to St. Andrews University, but as I mentioned in the introduction, you ended up leaving um, early. Can you just talk listeners through, I suppose, um, what happened there? Well, I, I, mean, I chose St. Andrews because my father was to, I, I didn't really want to go to university. I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And so I, um, you know, I, I ignored all application forms. And my father finally realized that this is what I was up to. And so he sat me down with an UCA form, which I think was the equivalent then of a, a UCAS form. And I thought, which is the university furthest from home? And I chose St. Andrews. So off I went to St. Andrews and I met my then next, you know, soon to be husband within two weeks of arriving. So I have to confess that although I went there nominally to study history, I was much more interested in, in studying, um, studying James Leith, who I um, became engaged to after three months at university. And I then left as you said in your introduction, uh, in my second year, he was in his fourth year taking his finals, which I don't think he got quite the grade he should have done for because of me. So we neither did neither of us any good at all, except that it did for life. <laughs> and we had a very, very happy marriage for nearly 52 years. And of course, your eldest son, Sam, actually works at The Spectator as a literary editor. So The Spectator also did quite well out of it. <laughs> <laughs> You could say that. You could say that. Um, now, I want to talk about obviously starting your career in journalism, um, but you mentioned that you just knew you wanted to be a journalist, which is part of the reason pre-James Leith, um, you weren't particularly infused about academic studies. Do you think seeing your father's work as an editor, yes, perhaps you weren't interested in the politicians, but made you interested in newspapers? Or was it something else, perhaps just an itch you had to write? I think I enjoyed writing. Um, I was a very shy person, so I didn't enjoy speaking, you know, I, I didn't, I, I, I froze if I had to speak in front of a table full of people. So writing was a way that I felt I could express myself much more clearly than verbally. So writing always appealed. And I think probably it was because I had this older brother 
five years older than me. And I absolutely hero worshipped him. And he went to university, he went to Cambridge and read history. Therefore, I read history. He went into journalism and I thought I would therefore go into journalism. I, I, I must say I've followed him in most things. Um, so in London, you train to be a journalist. Uh, you start working for the Evening Standard. Um, is it everything you uh, expected and more? No, I didn't actually start for the Evening Standard. When I was plotting to leave university, not telling my father, obviously, um, I had one time met Hugh Cudlip. <clears throat> and Hugh Cudlip then ran Mirror Group newspapers. <clears throat> and he said to me, if ever you want a job, just get in touch. So I did get in touch and I said, listen, I'm planning to um, run away from university. And you did mention that if ever I wanted a job. And he said, well, the IPC Young Magazines, IPC, um, which owned the Mirror actually at that time. So he said, the, the Young Magazine group is holding a, um, a training course, a pilot training scheme. And I can't give you a job, obviously, but I could put you in touch with the person who's running this scheme. And you can see if, you know, you, you're on your own, but you see if you get a place. And so I got in touch with this woman and I did get a place on this training scheme. And it was never repeated. They took six people and it was the most fantastic training. I spent six months um, working on different young magazines, learning everything about journalism, from reporting to feature writing to beauty and health to um, pop music. I mean, absolutely everything and, and even colour separation and printing. So at the end of that, I got a job uh, on 19 magazine, which was a great fashion and feature magazine. And I was a feature writer there. And then I joined the London Evening Standard not before I actually, I left 19 and went to South Africa with my husband, who was an, uh, was an actor and he was taken out of drama school to play against opposite Glynis Johns in a, in a play in South Africa. And because we were as poor as church mice and he had come from South Africa, I left my job in order to, we, we could afford one budget ticket and so I went across and spent um, several months in South Africa, tour going around the country with him. And we had the most fantastic time. And I came back and joined the Evening Standard. Sorry, that wasn't answering your question. Your question was, how did I find the Evening Standard? Oh, but I still liked the first answer. But yeah, how, how, did, you, how did you find the Evening Standard post-South Africa? <laughs> I found the Evening Standard terrific. Um, I, I worked on the Londoner's Diary, which is where... I worked on that. Did you? <laughs> well, um, I mean, everybody worked on it. And it was great. And I had some lovely editors there. And I had some lovely colleagues. And there were amazing people on the paper at that time. Um, it, was, it was just fantastic. I loved it. And yeah. I used to do the early turn, as it was called. So I would go in at 8 o'clock in the morning and set the, set the, pa the page. It was great. Yeah, for listeners who have not worked on the Londoner's Diary, it, at least in my time, it often involved going out to parties, trying to get people to speak to you, um, and then getting up very early to go into the office and write up those stories because you go to press before, of course, other papers because it's a, it's a day sheet. Um, did you have to go to parties and try and get people to speak to you? Yes, I did. 
Yes, I did. And I went to the um, lay, to the party conferences as well. Did you do that? Um, never as diary, now as political editor, I get to. But yeah, I was, I was more London focused. <laughs> well, I, uh, um, because he's no longer alive, I can probably tell you this story. But I was at Brighton in the Hotel Metropole, um, staying, you know, during the party conference. And Bron War was one of my fellow journalists down there at the time. And he, I think, had far too much to drink. I probably did too. And he got very amorous and went down on one knee outside my bedroom door. But um, he remained on the other side of the door. A proposal? Um, a proposal that he come through the door. Nothing else. <laughs> that sounds more like a party conference, party conference proposal. proposal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, you take a career break, um, I think, uh, to have to have your children. Um, is that right? Around I have a career break to take two, to have two of my children. Um, rather, yes, I, I wanted to be a full-time mother. And goodness knows why, because we were... Poor, poor, poor. Um, and we had, um, we, we moved to the tiniest cottage in, in Surrey with Sam when he was a month old, maybe two months old. Um, and I had given up work to have him. And I then had another baby two and a half years later. And I was loving being a single mother, but every time I met anyone or went to a party or anything like that, the men would come up to me and they would say, so what does your husband do? That would be the first question. And this, this so infuriated me that I decided it was time to do something as well as look after babies and, and clean nappies. So I started writing in a cupboard under the stairs in our tiny cottage. When the children were asleep, I wrote and I wrote freelance funny pieces, basically, about about the perils of bringing up two small children and set those off. And and gradually that increased. And, and I was asked for more. And I then got a column on Private Eye and then I got a column on something called Business Traveller. And then I got and then finally um, I got a book proposal. Um, a publisher asked me to write a book about babies and about buying for babies. And then, and then, and then, um, in 1981, I was asked my two sort of major things. One, um, a, 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 a Channel 4 was starting up and ITV who were making programs for Channel 4, Thames Television, um, approached me and said, uh, um, I'd been writing this consumer column in Private Eye. Would I be interested in doing, uh, working on a consumer program for Channel 4? And so I did a screen test and I joined them at the start of Channel 4 on a program called For What It's Worth, which then ran for about nine years. But at the same time, Charles and Diana, um, Prince Charles, uh, now King, married Diana. And immediately after the wedding, somebody that I had interviewed about a rabid dog in Kathmandu rang me up and said, um, I'd never written a biography, had I? How would I like to write a biography of Diana, Princess of Wales? And I have to say that I would, you know, if she'd asked me to write about Donald Duck, I would have 
it was the most fantastic opportunity. So I leapt at it, not because it was a royal, but just because it was an opportunity to write a book. And, and the rest is sort of history. It's now 40 years later, um, more than 40 years. Uh, and I've been writing, as well as other things, a lot of um, royal books since then. And it's interesting um, hearing you speak about that because I slightly touched on the introduction, but you're obviously very well known for your writing on the royal family, um, both in book form and articles. Yet you didn't. It doesn't sound as though you grew up grew up as an ardent royal. Um, he, he was, you know, particularly interested or following this very closely. Um, what was your approach to the royals before being asked this? Was did you think about the royal family much in a day? Um, no, not really. But I was at school with Princess Anne and three other princesses. So, you know, um, I was aware of the royal family in a way that perhaps other people were not necessarily. Um, and the Queen had come to visit the school. Um, but I was I was very ambivalent. I mean, I, I was, you know, the, the, the monarchy was there. It was just just there rather like politicians were just there. They were not of huge interest to me. But as you said in your introduction, it is absolutely true that in the course of writing about them, I mean, I've mostly focused on the Prince of Wales or now King and his family. So there was Diana, there was Charles and, I, and I've done both of his sons, William and Harry. And I've also done um, the, the now queen, Queen Camilla. But it's through those, and I did a bit about the, the, the firm itself, actually, um, the monarchy and what monarchy is all about and how it works. And in the course of all of these books, I have really become a great supporter because I do think, OK, it's undemocratic and, and you know, totally anachronistic for our times, but it seems to work. And from one, the, 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 the work ethic and the, the duty, the, the, the um the, the 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 desire to serve is actually it runs through them from certainly in the immediate heirs i can't speak about some of the others but um it, it maybe it's luck maybe it's maybe it's um genes i don't know but but there does seem to be they are extraordinarily hard working people and caring people and having traveled not just around the country with them, but also in other parts of the world, the effect that they have is, is extraordinary. People absolutely love seeing them. When, when things go wrong, you know, when, when communities uh, have met some sort of tragedy, the royal, if members of the family go and visit, it's not like a politician visiting because there's no vote in it. There's no no photo opportunity in it. I mean, you know, nine times out of 10, well, not nine times out of 10, but very often they will see people when, when no press know about it, no cameras. They, it, it is, they are caring. And I think they have an extraordinary effect on people and, and a, they are, they're a constant in a, in a world that is, is constantly changing. When you're, I suppose, writing your first book, but I suppose more generally in these books, I wondered how you found access, not in the sense of reveal your sources on this podcast, um, but often um, 
you know, it can seem quite opaque. And depending on who writes what, there can be claims that these do not, you know, the querying how sound they are with some stories in the press. I wondered if perhaps it's the style you write, perhaps it's small things like having attended School with Princesses. I, I wondered, do you feel like you get a certain level of trust that perhaps others don't? I think the trust is is earned. You know, um, trust does not come instantly because you were at school with Princess Anne. The, the first book I wrote, the Diana one, I immediately, I... I signed the contract to do it and then immediately wrote to Buckingham Palace and said I've been commissioned to write a book about about Diana can I come and talk to you and they wrote back saying no you can't um we believe she's far too young to have a book written about her um so sorry we can't help you and uh, but I did of course get accreditation as any journalist could to to follow her you know to um I mean I, I went on their first tour of Wales with them I mean with the press pack not actually with them but observing them um and I went all I mean I I really took inches of of rubber off my car tires trudging all the way around the country driving screeching around the country Fight going to her schools, her old homes, trying to find people to talk to. I mean, I was trying to write a decent book and she then announced that she was pregnant. And suddenly the papers were filled with, or, you know, the, the um, public, the bookseller was filled with new books that were, were being, that were suddenly coming out about her. And I, in a fit of fury, I um, wrote to Buckingham Palace and I said, listen, I'm trying to write a decent book about Diana. There are now 14 people also writing books about Diana. I have not bumped into one of them in all the places I've been where you would expect a biographer to go. I have knocked on doors and I have had doors shut in my face time and again. I think that they are being more, far more sensible than me, sitting at home with scissors and paste and regurgitating all the rubbish that we know has been written about her in the past. I'm trying to do a decent book and, and I'm thoroughly hacked off about it. And I got a reply saying, if you would like to write down a list of all the questions you would like Diana to ask, answer, please do that and send them to me and to us. And so I did. And Diana did answer most of my questions. But I must tell you, um, in the course of all of this, I mean, I, I was frantic, absolutely frantic. I, people wouldn't speak to me. I, it was because after the marriage, the, the people, their friends and, and relatives had been, her friends and relatives had been so trampled over by the, um, by the media that they just sort of said, they got together and they said, right, no more talking. We'll, you know, we're done. We'll, we'll call it a day. And that was when I got my contract. So life was very difficult. Anyway, I had a dream in the midst of this and my dream was, and I promise you this is true, I came home and I found my husband in bed with Diana, Princess of Wales. Did I scream and shout? Did I order them out? I did not. I pulled up a chair and a notebook and I sat by the bed and I said, right, you're gonna answer my questions. 
However, without having to go through the, um, the, the, the dream bit, um, she did answer my questions. Um, good news for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. Um, now, in your writing of Diana, one of the uh, aspects she wrote was some of the mental health problems she suffered from. And at the time, it did receive some criticism. And, and I wondered, um, A, how you found that, but also, um, do you think attitudes have now changed sufficiently uh, in the sense we now talk much more openly about mental health problems? Um, and lots of these things have been widely documented in terms of bulimia, self-harm. Yes. Um, I, th I mean, I didn't know that she had... Um, mental health problems when I wrote my first book about her. It was not until, I mean, I knew that she'd had a very troubled childhood. Her mother left home when she was six years old. She therefore, and she had no idea why. So she grew up feeling unloved and unwanted. And she had serious anxiety about being abandoned. So um, I, I mean, so I knew all of that. And I knew that, that there had been difficulties growing up, but it was really only when Andrew Morton wrote his book, Diana, Her True Story, that I knew what the problems were. Now, he described her bulimia and bulimia is a mental health problem today. I mean, when I, I, I talked about it, when I wrote after her death, I wrote a book called Charles, Victim or Villain. And the reason I called it that was because I found myself, I wrote about the three of them in the marriage, and I found myself saying to everyone I was talking to, look, what I'm trying to establish here is, was Charles the, uh, um, the victim of a, a mismatch, a terrible mismatch in his marriage, or was he a villainous, a villain who took a, a lovely, innocent young girl and used her? Um, never intending to love her or or cherish her, um, and and I need to know what what the answer is to this, and the conclusion that I came to, having spoken to people close to all three of them in the marriage, was that actually there were no villains at all; they were all victims. Diana of of this very difficult childhood, Charles of his situation, and his also actually difficult childhood and and Camilla who was a victim of a of a very difficult marriage with a husband who was repeatedly unfaithful to her um but so having um heard the, the description of Diana and her bulimia in her own true story I then talked about it, but by the time she had, by the time I wrote my book, she was she was dead and had been dead for over a year, 18 months or so. And in the aftermath of her death, she became a, a completely sanctified. Um, and nobody talked, I mean, before she died, people were getting quite critical of her, a lot of journalists. Um, but then suddenly they did a complete U-turn and, and she was this amazing princess, saint, saintly figure. Um, I simply redressed the balance and 
injected a little bit of reality in this book. I don't think I was unkind about Diana. I certainly don't feel unkind. You know, I, I, I think she was an extraordinary girl who um, had a very, very difficult life. But she had, she, I mean, she was amazing in many ways. But I explored the bulimia and bulimia is very often, you know, that it, it's a symptom rather than um, a diagnosis in itself. But I did get castigated for it. I had to hire a bodyguard to, to be with me when that book was published um, because I had death threats. I had people spitting at me in the streets. Um, somebody tried to attack me in the Albert Hall. It was very nasty. But it does feel as though attitudes have now changed or moved on a bit from that. Um. I think attitudes have changed. And I think that today, um, you know, she would probably have been talking about her, uh, her problems with her mental health. And, and that probably would have been very, very helpful. Yeah, particularly when you now look at the younger royals and there does seem to be a bit of a shift now to talking more about mental health, yes, in terms of lots of the charitable work, um, but also just being uh, more open. Exactly. I mean, they are talking about their own mental health. Um, you know, Harry has spoken quite openly about his and um, everybody is talking about their mental health now. Now, just a few final questions. I suppose uh, just finally on the royals, I wanted obviously we just had the coronation. Um, you are someone who has been charting, as you say, particularly Prince now King Charles for a long time. Do you think the monarchy is in uh, good health now? That we often there seems to be these perpetual pieces, which is you know, monarchy losing popular popularity in certain areas. Uh, what's the future? What it should be? But h- how do you see the future? Do you think it's um, upwards or downwards? From, I suppose when you when you started. Well, it's a it's a difficult question, you know, because I mean clearly when I started we didn't have the the Prince Andrew scandal. We didn't have. Um, the Harry situation. The Queen was much loved um, and had been there for, you know, she, she was part of the furniture and everything looked, looked hunky-dory. Uh, today, I mean, I think that King Charles is an extraordinary man. I think he and Camilla will, will do an amazingly good job. I think we will see, um, you know, subtle changes, but but very worthwhile changes from the previous reign. Um, I think he is much more engaged in some ways with issues than the Queen was, the old Queen. I think he's braver. I mean, he not braver. He He's not afraid to put his head above the parapet. Just quickly, are there, are there any books you're planning, you plan for in the future or you're currently working on, things that you um, still have an itch to do? Um, I'm not going to do any more royal books. I have, I've definitely scratched that itch, if it ever was an itch, an itch. Um, so that is, uh, that's my royal commenting and writing and is is over, I think. But yes, I've st- I, I will definitely write some more. Um, I At the moment, I want to write about my brother, who died 25 years ago and was an alcoholic. Um, and I feel... Uh, there are things that I would like to say to him and about that whole subject. So it's going to be a very personal book, but and maybe not even published, but that's what I am working on at the moment. 
hopefully published. Um, And finally, it's a question we ask everyone to end this podcast, which is, what is the worst advice you've ever been given, whether you took it or ignored it? Well, I think probably the worst advice was don't marry James, don't leave university. Not, not don't marry James, don't leave university. Wait until you've finished your degree. I ignored that and was, James died last year, but I was very, very happily married for nearly 52 years and have four wonderful children as a result. Thank you, Penny, for joining today. <laughs>